This week as I uh, <clears throat> was preparing uh, the sermon, I thought back to uh, graduate school and one particular course uh, that I took in graduate school uh, was a course called Doctrine of God. And it was probably the hardest uh, course I took. You had to do literally a thousand pages of deep theological reading each week. So just imagine the extent of the work that this class was. Uh, and then we get to the final of this class. And the final, we, we get, the, we get the, the final sheet, and it's one question on the final. And the one question was this, explain the doctrine of the Trinity. That was it. That's all we had to do. So several hours later, in several blue books, you younger folks might not remember the blue books, but I remember the blue books. Uh, several blue books later, uh, I had written for uh, a couple of hours on the Trinity, but the last line of that essay was this. At the end of the day, when we think about the Trinity, we have to come to terms with the fact that by its nature, it is utterly mysterious, right? And we believe that about the Trinity. Well, what we're doing this Lenten season is we are peering into uh, the mystery of the Trinity for a little while because we're peering into the relationship between God the Father and God the Son and how they worked in time and space and in history uh, to bring about our rescue, yours and mine, our rescue from sin and death. And so as you come to the Gospels, you find that it tells us a lot about this mysterious relationship. And the passage we're going to look at this morning comes from John uh, chapter 5, verses 19 to 47. So you can follow in the screens your own copy of the Bible or in uh, the bulletin as well. So this is, this is God's Word, our text for this morning. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, The Son can do nothing of His own accord, but only what He sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. And greater works than these will He show Him so that you may marvel." For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony, it's not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know 
that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the gift of worship, for the opportunity once a week to come together as a community of faith and and remind our hearts to settle our hearts on the things that really matter. We're also thankful for your word and that when we come to it, when we read it, when we reflect on it, we are changed as a result. So, Father, we invite your Spirit to come here this morning uh, to work through your Word, to show us the glory of Christ, to show us the power of the gospel. And I pray that we would leave changed as a result of encountering you here this morning. We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So this is a long passage uh, that we looked at this morning, and so we're not going to get to all of it, but what I'd like to do is to quickly look at the second half of our text and then come back to the first half and see two things about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And hopefully, eventually, we'll ultimately see what I think is the main passage of this text, which says this, that because of the relationship of the Father and the Son— You and I, we don't need to fear judgment any longer, but instead we can experience eternal life and the love of God. If you go back to the very beginning of this passage in John chapter 5, it starts out with a story. And the story is about Jesus healing a man uh, at the pool of Bethsaida, a man who this passage tells us Uh, had been an invalid for 38 years. Just imagine that for a second. For 38 years, this man could not walk at all. And so because of the society he lived in, he would have to live with the assistance of others for his entire life. Probably in this ancient culture, he would have uh, been considered to be an outcast. He would most certainly have been largely neglected by a society 
that didn't often care very well or care very much for people who were weak or oppressed. And so John 5 tells us that Jesus sees this man and he tells him very concisely yet powerfully, get up, take your bed and walk. And powerfully, the man does just that. Immediately, he is healed of his infirmity and he walks for the very first time in 38 years, for the very first time in decades. You can imagine what your response would have been had you been there. And of course, that was the response of everybody else who was there. They were amazed at what they had just witnessed. This man who had been an invalid for 38 years could now walk all by the sheer power of the words that came out of Jesus Christ's mouth. So, so you can imagine people were amazed at this. But what our passage tells us is that even though a lot of people were amazed, there were some people that were not particularly happy about what Jesus had done. Because what our passage tells us is that Jesus had healed this man on the Sabbath day, which was the Jewish day of rest in the ancient world. And so the Jewish culture, especially the, the kind of Jewish religious elite that were lurking around Jesus all the while, they were disgusted by what they had seen, and they wanted to kill Jesus because of his violation of the Sabbath. And so what this passage is, is it's an early instance of a growing hatred towards Jesus that will eventually get the very thing that they wish. And we know at the end of his life, he was crucified by the Jewish and the Roman authorities. But Jesus' healing on the Sabbath wasn't the only thing that angered those that were watching that day. Verse 18 says this, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. Now, you and I, we, we know the end of this story, but I want you to take a moment and imagine just how outrageous Jesus' claims would have sounded to those people that first heard them, because Jesus, all throughout his public ministry, made no bones about the fact that he was claiming to be God himself. Now, I don't know about you, I know a lot of people who try and act like they are God. I know a lot of people who want others to treat them as if they are God, but I don't know a whole lot of people who are willing to go around claiming to be God themselves. But that is exactly what Jesus does all throughout the gospel. So I think we would all agree, and I'm sure his first readers were, would agree, that if Jesus was going to make that claim that in some ways he had to prove what he was saying. He had to, to back up this claim to be deity because everyone, especially in the Jewish community, when they heard Jesus say this, would consider him to be a blasphemer, one who was guilty of blasphemy. And so in the second half of our text, what, in this long discourse, in the second half of our text, what Jesus does is he tries to call witnesses to defend his claim to be God. 
The first witness you read about in, is in verse 32, where he talks about John the Baptist and how John the Baptist knew immediately when he saw Jesus that this was no ordinary man, that he was God. He was the Messiah that everyone was waiting for. The second witness Jesus calls is his own deeds, his own works. And he says this in verse 33, that the works that Jesus did, the miracles that he performed, were things that only God could do. No one else could do these sort of things. And, and Jesus just proved that. He just marshaled the forces of creation to heal a man who had been an invalid for 38 years. So, so Jesus' works proved what he said. Witness number three was the Father, God the Father himself. And you have to wonder whether Jesus is recalling his own baptism. If you were with us last week, Gavin preached about this passage, about this time in which Jesus was baptized, and the scripture says, the heavens ripped open. And the voice of God came out and said, This is my Son, whom I am well pleased. So God the Father is a witness. In verse 39 to 40, he talks about how the Scriptures are a witness. That every page of the Scriptures point to the coming of Jesus Christ. And the last witness that Jesus calls at the very end of this passage is Moses himself. Moses would have been a hero to the Jewish people that were around Jesus at this point. And, and, and Jesus is saying that Moses, your hero, he, he, he spoke about me. He wrote about me. And so Jesus calls five witnesses to support the very thing that he was saying, that he was God in the flesh. But I think Jesus in this passage is, is interested in something beyond just a judicial proceeding. And that's what this, the kind of second half of this passage feels like. It feels like a, a judicial proceeding of calling different witnesses. But I think Jesus is after something deeper than that. He, he isn't after just a, a rational acceptance of his claim. He's after something deeper. And I think what he's after has everything to do with Jesus' relationship with the Father and the purpose behind the mission to which he came to this earth. And so as you go to the, the first part of our passage, I think Jesus establishes two things about the relationship of the Father and the Son. And the first is this, that when you get to know the Son— you get to know the Father. Look at verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. Now, whenever you come to the Gospels and you hear Jesus say that, truly, truly, I say to you, that's a signal to listen up because what Jesus is about to say is really important. And so that's what Jesus says. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. As I thought about that this week, I thought about uh, my own kids. And one of the things that I've noticed is that the older uh, my kids get, the more they, they tend to resemble my wife Becca and I. They, they start to look like many people that, like us. And it's, it's beyond just even a, a physical resemblance because we notice that as our kids get older, they tend to 
kind of resemble our behavior and our mannerisms. Uh, they, they tend to start acting and looking like us, for better or worse, uh, as, as they get older. And, and we know this to be true. How many of you, uh, you don't need to raise your hands, how many of you swore at some point when you were a teenager that you would never end up like your parents? Right? We've all done that. And I can remember many times as a parent now saying things that I heard my parents say when they were raising me as kids, right? And so we all know that we tend to resemble the environment in which we are raised. There tends to be a, a family resemblance that happens to us. Now, when it comes to the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, no illustration is ever sufficient. Because we are, we are peering into such a mysterious relationship, a, a depth of mystery that our minds will never be able to fully grasp. But I think we can at least partially understand what Jesus is trying to say here about his relationship with the Father. Because Jesus tells us that there is a unity of desire, there's a unity of will, there's a, a unity of purpose between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus is clear that he doesn't ever operate independently of the Father, but instead lives in perfect dependence upon his Father. In fact, the, the Gospels paint Jesus' picture with the, with the Father as one of utter dependence. Jesus depended upon his Father for everything. The Gospels also tell us that that Jesus lived perfectly according to his Father's will. Everything that was a part of the Father's will and his desire, Jesus did that. And he did it as an example of how you and I were intended to live our lives. We also see that that Jesus' mission was singular. His mission was to do the mission that God the Father gave him to do. So, of course, here there is a family resemblance in the sense that if you want to get to know the Father, you get to know the Son. They have been present together from eternity past, and they will be in perfect unity with one another for all of eternity. In the Old Testament, you you couldn't look on God because of His holiness and His greatness. But what the Gospels tell us, if you want to know the Father, just look to Jesus. He is the Holy One, the Infinite One, the all-powerful God taking on flesh and dwelling with humanity. So it also reminds us that God fundamentally is relational. He's relational within his own being, and it's a relationship of perfect unity and perfect love. It was, is, and will be continuous love, affection, and unity for all of eternity. So when you get to know the Son, you get to know the Father. But I think the second thing that Jesus says here is just as profound, that when you get to know the Son, you get to experience love and you get to experience life. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he is passed from death to life. 
See, what Jesus is saying here is really that the Father has given him two things. He's, given, he's been given two things by God the Father. The first thing that he's given is he is given the power to judge. If you were paying attention to this passage, it talks a little bit about Jesus being the judge or being given the power to judge by God the Father. And what it reminds us is this, and this is all over the scriptures, that there is a time that is coming when the judgment of God will be realized by everyone. And on that day, what our passage tells us is that the judge himself on the day of God's judgment is Jesus Christ. He's been given that power by God the Father. And on that day, our passage tells us he will separate those who have lived righteously from those who have lived wickedly or in an unrighteous way. Now that feels to us in our modern sensibilities, it feels very harsh, it feels in some ways stern, uh, it feels in some ways very oppressive. And sometimes whenever we think about the judgment of God, we, we come to the table with a certain amount of misunderstanding. We come with this misunderstanding that somehow God the Father is the really harsh and the judgmental one, and that Jesus is the very merciful and kind and, and understanding one. But what Jesus is saying here is, is that we can't fall into that misconception that Jesus and the Father, they are one in purpose and they are one in character. Now, I think this probably feels harsh, stern, and oppressive for another reason. I think it feels that way because deep down, each and every one of us, if we're honest with our own hearts, if we're honest with ourselves, know that we deserve the judgment of God. That when it comes to Jesus being the judge, that we deserve the punishment, we deserve the judgment, because we don't stand before God as people who are righteous. Instead, we all stand before God as the unrighteous, as the wicked, as those who are deserving of judgment. Our sin, our sin has condemned us, and Jesus will come as a judge in that end day. But friends, the power of the gospel message is this, that Jesus didn't just come with the power of the judge. He didn't just come to judge, but he came to offer all of us something other than judgment. And that's what we see in this passage as well, that Jesus, yes, is given the power to judge, but we also see he is given the power of life. And what Jesus says here is so beautiful. If we truly hear the words of Jesus and believe them with our hearts, we no longer need to fear judgment. Instead, our hearts can experience eternal life. You see, Jesus' audience, who he's speaking uh, to, they heard the words. They heard the words that Jesus was saying in this long discourse but it didn't reach their hearts. Their hearts, at the end of the day, they couldn't believe it, and so they rejected Jesus. But his message is very clear here. He says, believe in me, and you will experience eternal life. But I think Jesus' offer here is even deeper 
than the offer of eternal life. As good as that is, as good as it, as good as it is to escape judgment and receive eternal life, Jesus even adds more to it here. He says this, not only does the Father love the Son and the Son love the Father perfectly, but what Jesus is saying here is that if we place our faith in Jesus, then you and I, we get to participate in this divine, perfect love. And see, what the gospel tells us is that hearing and believing in Jesus grants us what what theologians call adoption into the family of God. And so we get to share in this divine love that happens between the Father and the Son. We become objects not just of divine and eternal life, but we are gifted divine and eternal love by God the Father and God the Son. So the gospel's clear about this. In the end, all of us will know Jesus in some way, shape, or form. Either we will know him as our divine judge that he has been given the power, or we will know him as the source of eternal life and the source of eternal love. William Barclay wrote this. He said, because of Jesus, the judge becomes the Father. Distance becomes nearness. Strangeness or estrangement becomes intimacy. And fear becomes love. You see, friends, because of the relationship of the Father and the Son, you and I, we don't need to fear God's judgment anymore. Instead, we can experience love and life. Let's pray.